0: Good morning. My name is Rob Daniels, and welcome to Visions and Sound. Now, for those that may be joining me for the very first time, Visions and Sound is a movie, TV, and video game soundtrack program that I produce each and every week, right here on 98.5 CKWR. Well, here we are, show number 33 of 2022. And show, show interestingly enough, show number 1138 and if you are familiar with Lucas at all you'll understand the the significance of 1138 did not plan it that way but there we go and if you're keeping track that way like i said 1138 this week we continue into august with a celebration of the 30th anniversary of the point and click adventure Indiana Jones and the Fate of Atlantis now the 90s was a fantastic period for the point and click adventure game especially at LucasArts. The LucasArts name would be adopted in 1990, transitioning from Lucasfilm Games. Now, LucasArts was often referred to as one of the big names in the field, often competing with Sierra Online as a developer of high-quality adventures. Now, the first half of the 1990s was the heyday ...for the company's adventure fame... ...with classic titles such as... ...Monkey Island 2, LeChuck's Revenge in 1991... ...Indiana Jones and the Fate of Atlantis in 1992... ...Maniac Mansion, Day of the Tentacle... ...and Salmon Max Hit the Road in 1993... ...and 1995 titles Full Throttle and The Dig. Today, though, we will be touching on... two of these adventure games. Now, Monkey Island 2, which, like I said... ...did start in 1991, though... The reason why, or it was released in 1991, the reason why I'm doing this, this, uh, I, including Monkey Island to LeChuck's Revenge in this particular show, is the fact that um, both Indiana Jones and The Fate of Atlantis and Monkey Island were kind of done simultaneously. I'll leave, well, I'll get to that in just a minute. Like I said, today, although we will be touching on these two adventure games, Monkey Island 2 and, of course, the aforementioned Fate of Atlantis, I did have this past week, or this past, yeah, this past week, the great opportunity to speak to three composers who worked on the game. I'll get to that in just a little bit. However, before we begin on today's show, here is some music from the game Monkey Island 2 LeChuck's Revenge. Now, the score here, which was often the practice at the time, did have CD tracks on the actual game disc itself. So that's where you're going to hear this particular score from Monkey Island to LeChuck's Revenge. We'll be back in just a bit. little bit of music from the game Monkey Island 2. Ah, so we're celebrating this week, and welcome back to Visions and Sound, by the way, as we're celebrating this week the 30th anniversary of Indiana Jones and the Fate of Atlantis. Now, for those that may be joining me a little bit later on, why did I play Monkey Island first? Because Monkey Island and in Indiana Jones came out around the same time. Now, they actually started working on Indiana Jones first, the composers, so... Yeah, it, it's it. They're kind of hand in hand with each other, I guess you could say. So, like I said, welcome back to Visions and Sound. As this week we are celebrating the 30th anniversary of Indiana Jones and the Fate of Atlantis. Now, I mentioned an interview that I did, um, if the earlier this earlier this week, earlier this week, yeah, and yeah, the the. Well, you know what? I'm going to let the interview speak for itself. Um, This is an interview with the three composers, uh, Clint Bajakian, Peter McConnell, and Michael Land. We'll be back in just a little bit. Well, folks, it's hard to believe, but it's been 30 years since the point-and-click adventure, Indiana Jones and the Fate of Atlantis has graced your computer. Now, Believe it or not, you can still play it today if you go to Steam. I have with me today, and this is, I think this is fantastic, three of the composers who worked on not only Fate of Atlantis, but other projects that we will be discussing as well. So if I could have uh, you guys introduce yourselves, so let's start with uh, with Peter.
2: Uh, I'm Peter McConnell, and I worked uh, at LucasArts in the early 90s uh, after uh, Michael uh, pretty much uh, established the sound department there.
3: Uh, Michael Land here. I uh, started at LucasArts, actually it was Lucasfilm Games at the time in 1990. I was the, the first uh, music audio guy there. I brought in these uh, these two galoots that I had known uh, previously and uh, you know we had a great time for about the next decade.
1: Yes, this is Clint Bajakian and uh, I joined LucasArts with Michael and Peter in 1991. And uh, we all went together uh, to about 2,000. And uh, in during that time, we scored a lot of games together as composers, sharing many of them, um, but also uh, sometimes d- 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 taking on solo projects like Peter taking on Full Throttle and Grim Fandango, or myself taking on Outlaws, or Michael taking on The Dig, uh, and, and Monkey Island, uh, uh, the... Uh, the 1999 uh monkey island uh so we sometimes split off on our own but but worked together very closely and even in some rare cases uh completing one another's compositions
0: okay fantastic well um let's let's start with uh how did you first become involved with lucas
2: arts uh, peter well I, I i i would actually hand this off to michael because he was he was the he was the uh he was the granddaddy. He he. Well, not that. Word, yeah,
3: not exactly. But yeah, I was just a kid, <laughs> kid at the time. You know, this is this is the truth. It's a great story. Um, I was looking for a job, uh, having just moved out to California, and my mom said, "You know, you should look for a news. Look in the newspaper, see if there are any ads there." And I was like, "Come on, there's never any good jobs in the newspaper." But just to you know, humor her, I, I looked, and and there was a job saying, "You know, C eighty eighty six sound design." And I was like, uh, that sounds like me. And, um, uh, yeah, got the job.
0: Okay. Fantastic. So, so, um, you said that you brought both Clinton, Peter, how did they become involved? Um, behind- well,
3: it was, it was clear to me right from the get-go that, um, you know, this was a, uh, a great challenge and opportunity. There was, you know, at that time, um, Interactive music wasn't really a thing, you know, adaptive music, I guess is what it's called nowadays uh, wasn't really a thing yet. And I kind of, you know, thought, you know, I mean, I knew they were both great composers. I had worked. I, I, I knew Clint from high school. I knew Peter from college. So, you know, I, I, I knew their skills and, and intellect uh, were great and thought, you know, there's no way I can get through this without help from those guys. Uh, so I brought them in.
0: Fantastic. So, um, now, I know we, we had discussed just beforehand, just before, just before the interview, about um, both um, Monkey Island 2, uh, LeChuck's Revenge, and uh, Fate of Atlantis. So um, which came first? And um, how did you become aware of each of the projects? And how did all three of you uh, come to work on, on, the, uh, on, the, on the games?
1: Well, I, let me speak to this first. This is Clint. Uh, nope. it, one of the things that happened, uh, I think right before Michael called Peter and me uh, is that sound cards came out. Um, so that it was a niche market back then, nothing like the video game industry we see today, which is essentially a mammoth uh, blockbuster industry, uh, very much in the mainstream. It was not in the mainstream at that time. And so uh, essentially to to play LucasArts games, you had to be a computer enthusiast uh, who maintained your computer and uh, knew more than a thing or two about uh, bringing on new hardware and enhancing your system and and grappling with uh, IRQ conflicts and all the rest to get your printer and your sound card all working together. Uh, And once those sound cards came out, the the need for music mushroomed from about uh five ten minutes per game to about two to three hours per game Mm -hmm. and when that happened uh michael i sorry peter and i got the phone call from michael pretty promptly and uh as a result when we joined um shortly thereafter it became time to work on both monkey island 2 and fate of atlantis And it turned out that Fate of Atlantis was such a large game and it was was such far reaching story and and complexity uh, that Monkey Island 2 sort of took the fore in its development and we, uh, having worked on both at the same time, gravitated to Monkey Island 2 and really put our attention to that to finish that up and it shipped before Fate. Right. And then, and then we uh, switched over to *Fate of Atlantis* and uh, attended to it with Hal Barwood, uh, the director.
0: All right. So, well, let's start with uh, with uh, *Monkey Island 2*. Um, how did you split up the various assignments, or did you all work as as one one cohesive unit? I guess.
2: Pretty much well, by island. Oh, go ahead, Mike.
3: Yeah, go ahead. That's what I was going to say. So, continue. Yeah.
2: It's just pr- pretty much by island. I mean, Michael had written the themes for uh, Monkey Island one. Uh, the two really, I-, I know, if if I can say so, uh, I think two of the best themes in in, in game music history. Um, uh, the Monkey Island theme and LeChuck's theme, and so those were they were kind of the backbone of uh, of the uh, of the Monkey sort of franchise, if you will. So when, when Monkey 2 came around, we had this sort of solid thematic foundation to build on, and it was more a matter of, like, di- of dividing up the, the game into, into uh, well, by the islands, but regions where each composer felt sort of like he was in his wheelhouse. Um, so yeah, that's, it was kind of geographic, and then at the end, I think the final uh sort of finale we kind of all did things together
1: okay and if i may embellish on that this is clint uh we if i remember correctly pete took on booty island i took on fat island uh mike took on uh melee island and uh mike can you uh, uh, fill in the blanks there and maybe monkey island as well
3: Let's see. It wasn't there wasn't a monkey or a melee. I don't think in Monkey Two. I think it was Woodtick, or but maybe okay. that was the town.
1: Um, yeah,
3: I forget the name of the island uh, uh, that <coughs> Woodtick was on. I don't think it was called Melee, but I'm not sure. Um, but yeah, it was. Uh, you know, we had this geographical separation, but also uh, that was a very porous uh, border. That, that was established. Because I, I remember, for example, when, you when like just as a little detail with Monkey 2, when you start out uh, at the game, we had a moment of silence after the beginning, just to be like, oh yeah, we're going to pretend that we're going to be quiet like every other game. And that was the only silence in the entire game. The rest of the game was paved with music. And that first piece that played after the silence, I remember Pete wrote the piece and I was like, yeah, but it needs a bridge. And so I wrote the bridge. So we were all over each other's pieces. Uh, and and you know it worked pretty well because we have very compatible but different styles, so it, it's a it's a nice combination, and and that persists to this day. So it's just a we we work really well as a compositional team with, you know, both distinct styles but a cohesive uber style, so to speak.
0: Okay, now um, Michael, if I'm not mistaken, that you developed the interactive uh, music system. I believe it was called iMuse. Yeah, I did that
3: with Pete. I mean, Pete and I basically did that from the ground up. Um, and uh, I had done some of the original initial work on it. And when I brought Pete in, we basically took it, you know, the most of the way down the football field into the end zone. And, uh, yeah, that was quite a bear. Um, it was really elemental to the, to the compositional approach for the game because we wanted to have things really changing as you move through the game. And that was kind of a new concept, at, you know, at least to the degree that we did it. So, um, yeah, that was that was a big part of it.
0: So now you've got uh, Monkey Island, and you're working on Monkey Island, and then um, you're kind of at the same time, or kind of in the middle, working on Indiana Jones and the Fate of Atlantis, kind of a different game. Um, but first of all, you have the uh, the fantastic um, theme by John Williams. So were you were you given uh, notes by um, by the publishers or the or John himself? said this is how many times you can use my theme during the game or were you just were you just given um kind of uh, carte blanche and open and uh, did your music as as you said you saw fit
1: well i'll take a stab at that uh i would say in one word george uh now what i mean by that is george lucas was star wars and george was indiana jones so working within his software entertainment uh company uh it was it was an amazing um kind of you could almost say carte blanche that that existed uh, because everybody as you can imagine in the company had a devout uh relationship to to those properties and a sense of deep, deep knowledge uh, of of the, the lore uh, attendant to both uh, to both franchises. And so there was a great deal of trust, I think, in in LucasArts to maintain the, uh, the aesthetics, the, the, the philosophy, the approach to things like mystery, to things like um, uh, you know, John Williams's musical style. And so we really were on our own in that. And of course, there are uh, conventions that are so simple and yet so effective, such as in a heroic moment, being sure to, to play the iconic Raiders of the Lost Ark trumpet theme uh, as Indy solves a puzzle or overcomes an enemy or or solves something to get to the next part of the game, so we really were more more or less on our own. And something else to point out too, is that in in the Indiana Jones games that that we worked on, yes, John Williams was of course a a, a shining beacon of. Uh, of 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 a model and and very daunting, of course, in terms of his amazing compositional skill and vision as a composer. And interestingly, much closer to home, our John Williams of the Monkey Island music was Michael, uh, who was right there amongst us. And uh, you know, his vision and and originality on on Monkey One, the secret of Monkey Island, uh, was something that we could all kind of grasp onto and 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 work with as a model as well, when we were on the Monkey, Monkey Island uh, side of things. And it's, it's worth pointing out too, that as it relates to the Monkey Island style, a term emerged, and Michael, correct me if I'm wrong or follow up here, but uh, 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 in terms of describing its genre, and that term was pirate reggae. So, you know, what does pirate mean? Well, pirate means, old world shanty, simple diatonic, seagoing uh, strains that then get set in a kind of islandy reggae context. And that really became uh, the, the, the basis uh, for, for, the, for the musical style for the, for the score. But something else happened as well in Monkey Island, which was a tradition that's been maintained literally to this day which is the freedom and massive latitude that we granted ourselves to allude to other styles in history, uh, uh, quotes from classical music, um, approaching something with a kind of period uh, approach with harpsichord and and, um, European Renaissance and and, uh, early, early classical instruments. Um, so it wasn't all reggae. It wasn't all bass and drums and groove. It, it, you know, some of the pieces were almost, you know, studies in European historical, you know, styles. So it, it became very eclectic, uh, based on the location. And I think that eclecticism had a certain wry wit about it that, you know, was picking up off of Ron Gilbert's and his fellow writers, original wit and dry wit, uh, in their writing of the game,
2: yeah, there, was, there was also, I think, uh, there was a genuine reggae vibe in the groove under uh, under it, though. And if I remember right, uh, uh, Michael, didn't you didn't you do some work with one of the original uh, whalers?
3: Yeah, uh, you know, I had done a a, a gig um, uh, on keyboards uh, playing in a in a reggae band uh, with a guy who was the percussion player for Bob Marley, and oh. um, he. Uh, was a really good percussion player uh, and, and, and he had a, he had a unique approach uh, to percussion. He, he played it with this melodic sort of quirky off kilter sound that was very alive. And so, you know, that was sort of in the air and kind of, you know, kind of tried to throw a bunch of that energy into the score. And it seemed to, it seemed to fit. And then, and then, so, so bring this back to, to Fave Atlantis, uh, you know, we had that sort of that whimsy and that range, Sort of in our fingers and in our bones, coming from monkey, and so we were able to then come to Atlantis and uh, instead of just saying, "Okay, we're going to just you know go right down the middle of the road and ape John Williams as best we can," which is kind of what we did for most of the Star Wars games, uh, but in Fate of Atlantis, we didn't do that. We we ha- we had a much wider field of view, having just come off a monkey, and so you know it was centered around the Williams uh, language. But it, it went in a lot of other directions, too. And I will have to bring in at this point to the conversation uh, the name Hal Barwood, who was an amazing project leader. And uh, just to give a quick you know brief of his background, he had gone to film school with Steven Spielberg and was um, very and had actually directed a, 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 a full scale movie and was extremely, um, you know, he's buddies with, you know. Yeah, two of them, and he was buddies with George Lucas, and so, you know, he had great job security. Um, and uh, he was very, very open-minded and extremely wise about understanding the role of music in a visual medium.
2: Right. Yeah, I think I think I learned, uh, I think I learned, uh, you know, more from about scoring a picture from Hal than just about anybody. Uh, I mean, he and there were simple things like he would say, well, you know, you, you, there, there are two ways you could could handle this scene. You could have the music uh, anticipate what's going to happen, or you could have the music react to what just happened. And you know, simple things like that, that, you know, it never really occurred to me. And, um, you know, here's the guy who was, who was in the room with, uh, with uh, Steven Spielberg and John Williams when John Williams tapped out the beginnings of, of the Close Encounters of the Third Kind theme. So he knew whereof he, sp- he spoke, and uh, he just had all these, you know, all this great uh, knowledge and experience and uh, sort of artistic uh, sensitivity about, um, you know, how to handle how to handle music with picture. And it was just a really great experience working with Hal.
3: Yeah, I'd like to pick up on that. And, and, and you know, just switching to the dig for a second in the introduction to the dig. We were having such a hard time, uh, Sean Clark and, and and myself and others uh, figuring out how to sequence that opening montage and how to make it all work. And and one day Hal just came in and said, "Put this here, put that there, put this there." And he, and the the reason he was able to do that is because and and when he did that, by the way, it all just completely came together. And 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 the reason he was so able to do that is because he completely understood that there is dialogue uh, sound. And music and how those three things relate to one another is like, defines the dramatic flow. And he just saw that so clearly. And, and I, you know, I've never forgotten just how important it is to understand things on that level.
2: Hal told me once that he had um, done pretty much every job there is to do in the movie business from being the key <laughs> grip to best boy to uh, uh, directing. the movies were Dragon Slayer and Corvette Summer those were two movies that Hal made but anyway um he was just uh uh you know an amazing fount of knowledge and you would just sometimes just go to him with questions even if you weren't working on his
1: project and 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 you know at the at the risk of belaboring this question Robert uh and and before moving on I just want to make sure that this doesn't get left behind which is that Hal had an approach to uh, developing his titles which was incredibly effective and and an approach that I and I think all three of us uh, have um, utilized to this day uh, having kind of learned it from from him Uh, and that is at any given moment you assess the project and the biggest problems get dealt with. Uh, and then once they're dealt with, you have the next set, hopefully of lower uh, uh, you know scope as you go, um, and you deal with those. And then you get to that point, and now you have a set of the the most pressing uh, blemishes or or issues that need to be uh, fixed and addressed and you deal with those, and you progressively work your way down until you're at such a level of granularity. At some point, management just rips the thing out of your hands and says, you're done. We, we have to ship this thing. And it's an incredibly effective, it's it, again, a little bit like his uh, advice about film scoring that, that Peter mentioned. Uh, it's kind of simple, right? Uh, and some people refer to it as uh, banging down the most offensive nails Uh, let's say nails are sticking through a plywood roof and 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 the most the most uh offensive ones you bang down and then you scan the landscape for the next uh set of most offensive ones and you keep doing that until you're down to a level of granularity where really it 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 doesn't really matter anymore and hopefully you've got that time in development to do that and uh lo and behold you have an extremely high quality product
2: with, with with Indiana Jones, uh, it was definitely uh, an extra challenge because because since you had the three paths uh, in the game, there were a lot of nails to bang down. Right. Right. And um and that's uh, and, and I th- my recollection is the way we divided the music in that um, is that we kind of each took a path. Is that is does that is that what you guys remember?
1: that exceeds my memory
2: pete
3: <laughs> yeah mine too <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I,
2: I feel like we we kind of each took a path as opposed to each taking an island but but i could yeah uh, uh, uh it, it is it has been 30 years yeah it sure has
0: the, the the thing is is that you guys came in on the kind of the ground floor of of sound cards so were you given specs by the manufacturers were you given or were you just you know going out to the stores and grabbing a a a sound card and working with it at the, at the at wherever you were working at so how, how did that work how, how did you um and eventually end up adapting your music for um for, for the different sound cards of that time well, the
2: sound. My recollection is that the sound card manufacturers would actually court us, oh, because they wanted they wanted to have they wanted to have um, you know their their cards sounding good in in in, a, in particular games. So, for instance, there were uh, really early on. I seem to recall going to a Sound Blaster convention. We had uh, we would get you know the latest stuff kind of sent to us. From these guys saying you know you know you really need to check this out and uh a fellow named tom white who's who's uh who's uh a technical whiz at at roland and, and was was uh responsible for pretty much responsible for getting midi off the ground he would come and visit us and he showed us something you know here's something called the sound canvas you guys you guys should check this out here's the demo and so then we would we would get all the specs and, and delve into them and, and learn how to support them.
1: And, and one thing I remember, this is Clint, uh, is, is Michael and Peter having developed the IMU system and, and being of the three of us, the only two who uh, really had uh, technical wherewithal uh, as it relates to all this stuff, I remember how much work uh, and attention had to be paid to um, supporting all the different sound cards and adopting different drivers. And for the longest time, I thought we were talking about golf. And so I, I, uh, I had a really hard time when I finally realized that drivers are some sort of weird virtual thing that enables a computer to, uh, to talk to its sound card. Um, but uh, th- there was so much testing, there was so much work Uh, One of the byproducts, just as a complete aside, that that had in in our group of three was that uh, certain odd jobs and things that were off in the periphery a little bit at that time, because it was so early in in video games and video game audio, was that I was more tasked with pulling sound effects together uh, because I didn't have the skills or the knowledge to contribute to the vast amount of work needed to kind of steward the the technical aspect of of supporting these different cards and and um uh, strategies for uh developing a game that that included these different drivers and api you know uh, talk to the api uh and in successful ways and different computer platforms and 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 the IMU system itself, and and the rigors of of the technical uh, requirements of of that system, as it relates to memory and storage and and uh, processing uh, overhead, that at that time was <laughs> at an amazing premium, and I think now would be the right time to tell uh, a, a quick anecdote. Uh, Michael Stanley uh, was one of the uh, principal uh, programmers on Indiana Jones, and I—I I, very excited had completed a big composition, and I ran up to his office with a floppy disk, a little what what were they five inch, four inch? I can't even remember four and a half inch. Those little plastic floppy three and a half, three and a like half. Those little uh, guys, those little guys. And I I went up and he he put it in his computer and brought it in and 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 he says oh. He goes, "This is thirty eight k." And I said, "Yeah, <laughs> yeah." And he goes, "Yeah, no. Uh, in this in this section of the game, we can only afford twenty eight k of uh, you know space for this piece of music in memory. And so I had to go back and not only thin my percussion parts, but I had to actually cut sections from my composition to get it down to to the spec. And uh, those those were the type of rigors that we were dealing with. And uh, so when you talk about sound cards and sound card support, um, it's it's actually a huge question, Robert. I mean, one of the uh, questions is, okay, how do we develop as composers? Uh, do we do we set up a MIDI interface from our MIDI sequencers where we're composing the music and actually you know in, entering the parts from our MIDI keyboard and constructing a composition? Do we actually talk to the most ubiquitously available, likely to be in the marketplace, some ninety plus percent users out there, sound cards, which means that we're writing to FM synthesis, which was Woefully primitive and uh, extremely limiting if you're thinking and especially when you're trying to write in in somewhat of a style of John Williams and orchestral, you know, mysterious evocative music of Indiana Jones, uh, or do you write to a a better synthesizer and then port that down uh, with help from others to To cover all the different sound card uh, needs. And we chose the latter. We chose to compose to, at that time, the Roland MT-32 synthesizer. It also gave us consistency from person to person. If I'm not mistaken, we might have even shared a template, a composition template in our midi sequencers so that uh, the, the the other person, the other composer, if they were to open your piece, and work on it more or refer to it or copy sections out of it, what have you, um, it would be seamless between the three of us and we would be able to work in an environment that was uh, relatively inspiring as it related to the quality of the sound that you were dealing with. But then we we bought ourselves, of course, the the challenge down the road of then porting all of that music and adapting it to the lower technology, which happened to be the majority of the marketplace, uh, it tended to be either two operator FM synthesis, frequency modulator synthesis, uh, or four operator FM synthesis. And just to give a little uh, highlight to what that means, the very famous iconic Yamaha DX7 synthesizer back in those days, was four operator FM synthesis. So essentially- I think that was
3: six. That was six
1: it was
4: options. six, yeah.
1: Oh, I'm yeah. sorry, okay. But the, the, the point applies though, is that basically that is the technology that most of our audience was experiencing. Our so players. yeah, actually,
3: actually I'm gonna correct that a little bit because yeah. uh, the, the the most of the audience didn't have a sound card at all. And so that would play on the PC internal speaker And uh so I don't know, maybe it was 50% had an ad, maybe like 50% had an ad lib, five percent had an MT32, and the rest had nothing. And so we basically were working in three formats. So we would typically, although not I I actually composed a couple of pieces, you know, driving an ad lib card, but uh mostly would we would drive the MT32 when composing. Then we had a really complicated set of, of patch generators so we could really tweak out the different patches on the ad lib to get them to sound as good as possible. Um and then for the uh, PC internal speaker, that was a trip. That was basically a monophonic square wave. And what you had to do to write a multi, to convert a multi part piece to monophonic square wave is you'd have to separate everything in time so that you'd have the bass note on the downbeat, and then you'd have a little brr, a little flam of a chord, and then you'd have a melody note, and then the and and it ended up being like a Bach partita. Because you know Bach, had, Bach could basically just play one note at a time on the violin, but it sounds like multiple lines because he's just got them all interacting so nicely, and that was the goal. For you know, and it turned out interestingly enough that the compositional puzzle of reducing a, a multi-voice piece down to a monophonic square wave was actually a really interesting, uh, you know, musical puzzle. I actually kind of enjoyed that work, believe it or not.
2: I think that was before our time, Mike. I, I think uh, I. I I, Didn't I Monkey never two? got I think, that opportunity. Yeah,
3: you never did that. But I think Monkey 2, it was sort of phasing out. It was basically, a lot of it was on Monkey 1. And then in Monkey 2, I think what we did is we picked selected pieces. And I think same thing on Indy. We picked selected pieces right. to convert, right. which was a very small subset of, of the overall
2: score. If, if I remember right, that PC speaker driver, you, you only had two commands, in and out. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, so, so somehow, so the driver had to be pretty clever because... it had to actually turn that into into sound waves
3: no it Um, didn't it was a monophonic square wave oh square wave
2: yeah right this is monophonic square wave but yeah but just so so you have to so yeah
3: exactly all you all you can do is turn move the speaker to position a or position b and you just have to do it at the right time
1: (laughs) wow well, at, at this at this moment, Robert, while you're cooking up your next question, I'll, I'll just say a non sequitur, which is the the hallmark of the three of us, I guess, which is that we had the good fortune being in LucasArts of of interacting occasionally with members of Lucasfilm and Skywalker Sound. Right. And we became friends with Gary Rydstrom. Uh, who's an uh, absolutely, at that time, and he's become more into filmmaking now as well, but at that time was a premier sound designer uh, with titles like Jurassic Park, uh, uh, Saving Private Ryan, um, uh, just just an incredible sound designer, and and we asked him about his potential interest in games in the mid-90s, and he said, well, you know, I'd be interested, but the bandwidth just isn't there. I mean, you, you guys are struggling with 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 like such low res and and everything and such such uh, restricted bandwidth that it does just doesn't have my interest yet. And just as a side note, what what has happened in the video game industry, of course, with the original development of platforms like the Xbox in two thousand, and now what are we at PlayStation Five? Uh, that really these 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 are such blockbuster pieces of equipment uh, as it relates to graphics power and and everything uh, bandwidth uh, throughput uh, memory um that in fact all of that uh uh, bandwidth is there now so that is an interesting driver of what we've seen over the, the past couple of decades of of uh more and more cross-pollinization between the film industry and the games industry as it relates to talent sound designers composers score production everything
2: my recollection is that um, uh, that Gary though did come around uh, and visited us and, and we I mean we'd have quite we had quite a few meetings with him and he and he, and he and he and he did check out what you were doing with full throttle Clinton I remember him being very complimentary about that so
1: so well, I, I think he was in a real quick thing as a digression and and then Robert, please do launch the next question, but, uh, (laughs) in full throttle, it was my first title in sound design where I was able to, in an extremely enthusiastic way, I remember just being so enthusiastic, uh, implement some of what I had learned from Gary. And I mean, we're talking, learned from him in, in idle conversations at lunch. Uh, you know oh we took this and we combined it with that for that and this is how we made that sound or this or that low frequency or that and and then I I said well I got to bring that into full throttle as best I can and just the most mundane example by today's standards in video games but at that time was sort of a you know I think a somewhat special import from one of the greatest sound designers in in all of film uh but, but a very crude example by today's standards, but when Ben started his bike, I mixed in a lion's roar. It's Ben Burt uh, he's talking about. No, no, I'm ta- no, I'm talking about Ben, the motorcyclist. Oh, Ben Throttle. Oh, Ben, whoa, whoa, whoa. ben Throttle. Yeah, yeah. In, in, in yeah, full Throttle. Because he got that trick from Ben Burke. <laughs> I, well, the idea, well, I got that concept. And again, by today's standards, that is now de rigueur uh, amongst sound designers in the video game industry. Everybody knows about those sorts of techniques. But at that time, the psychological effect of mixing in a lion's roar in a kind of imperceptible way, it's not like when he started his bike, you heard a lion roar, right? It was mixed into our original recordings which is a whole nother point that we insisted on bringing in motorcyclists and in particular a guy from san francisco with with straight pipes and a a harley uh, chopper and uh, that is actually the sound of ben's bike and we did a whole extensive set of, of field recordings with him and just the i guess you could almost say ethos of 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 feeling uh obligated to make field recordings as opposed to like going to some library and hoping to find motorcycle sounds. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but on top of that, combining a lion's roar in there, uh, was, was something that, you know, I think, uh, was, was a, a faithful attempt to bring some of what we learned by rubbing elbows, uh, with Skywalker sound And, uh, you know, I think that LucasArts was in a, we at LucasArts and LucasArts itself was in a very sort of privileged position to be tied with and under the same umbrella as George Lucas's other entertainment companies.
0: Fantastic. Now, when you guys composed your music, were you using the score page or, or was the technology to the point where you could actually put it on the computer?
2: We worked out of sequencers. We worked out, we, uh, and I think most uh, most composers uh, who work in in film and, and games these days do that. Um, uh, so occasionally, I think I think I, I think Clint does this too. Occasionally, I'll use a little paper um, to to sort of work things, work problems out. But the uh, we were pretty much it was you would work uh, in in um, you know digital audio. Sequencing software that drives MIDI sounds, or or, or maybe um, it has also has the ability. This would be later on in those days to record audio. So it was a pretty direct process, but um, we um, we did refer sometimes to written scores. I know I got written scores for to for instance for John Williams written scores, so we could properly. Um, you know, orchestrate those for, say, the rural in MT-32. For, and this is now getting a little later, but for, for Grim Fandango, I I, uh, I got some of the classic scores from from um, some of the Hollywood, Hollywood noir films like Casablanca, Treasure of Sierra Madre. Uh, it's not noir, but it is bogey. Um, and, uh, you know, just looked at those. And so I, I think... Uh, you know we are in we're in this nexus of of old school music training and influence and the new technology that enables us to do so much uh and uh, uh, everybody finds their own con- you know combination of those two things
0: right i'll get some recollections from your days at lucas arts in, in just a second but i i i've heard you mention that there was a there's you're going to be returning to the monkey island universe and with an with a a new score so uh, are you all are all three of you involved we
2: just finished returning
1: oh well uh, that's really quickly uh peter uh took on the role and we always had this at lucas in the old days and it was always very successful we would have a lead composer uh even though it was extremely democratic if anything entirely democratic the way we would decide different things uh, we we did always believe in the the power of having a lead composer amongst the three of us um and that didn't necessarily mean aesthetic lead either it might just be a more logistical lead right and uh this time around peter uh filled the role with with flying colors uh he led us through an extremely Uh, challenging production environment uh, where budget was um, limited and we uh, wanted to in keeping with the the LucasArts tradition and the tradition of Monkey Island uh, create the absolute best score that we possibly could which meant um, stretching every dollar and every minute to to take on leadership in um, a challenge like that was a little bit like uh, leading a naval battle in a storm Uh, I think for Pete and and he did an absolutely beautiful job and allowed Michael and me to focus a little bit more perhaps on creativity Uh, not that Pete didn't because he he wrote a a great deal of the score uh, as well and it it was really a throwback to the way we worked in the old days Um, the difference I would say and then uh, Michael I'm hoping Uh, that you have some comments on this too, because it's definitely been a really exciting project. It's been about a year that since we learned about it and, and we've completed the score. One of the things that was uh, really exciting uh, about the old days was that we were all full-time employees at a company. Uh, And in those days, there was really no sense of, working remote. Actually, there was in some cases, but but in in most cases, it was really a model where everyone worked in the same workplace uh, and commuted there every day. Uh, So we were all physically together every day and we were able to have uh, discussions about um, strategy, about how we should approach the score from different standpoints. Often there would be arguments, which I think accounted for uh, greater and higher levels of success Uh, After a consensus was reached, um, we were able to be in the middle of a a very intensive discussion about uh, uh, strategic and aesthetic issues and then look at our watches and say, well, you know what, guys, it's time for lunch. Let's continue this over lunch. And then we would go to lunch and absolutely rigorously continue the discussion. This was different uh, this time around where most of our interactions were virtual over Zoom or over telephone. Um, All of our meetings with the project team were over Zoom, uh, albeit they were weekly, which was wonderful, uh, really kept us uh, a finger on the pulse and kept our our team, uh, the overall team, very well integrated. But I would say that was the main difference. We used to really, uh, every day at LucasArts, just, you know, interact and 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 hash out issues in person which i think we all recognize as uh being a bit better than remote but i'll tell this one last anecdote about that and then again hoping michael for some comments on 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 these different workflows and and how we've gone about this one we had in the new what we called the new building which was uh not Kerner Boulevard, which was a office complex in San Rafael where Star Wars was originally made, right? Uh, which is where, when I joined the company, we were first located. But about uh, two or three years later, we moved to a larger, better appointed building. And we actually had our own little common area with a couch and a couple of armchairs and a coffee table. Uh, and there was a big fire door that that uh, it, that was the access to our sort of private um sitting area where all three of our offices were studios if you will and we so often found ourselves sitting in those seats and, and in a rambling conversation about all sorts of issues, many of which were game specific, some of which were politi- what we called political, having to do with our relationship with management and some of the tensions with the producers regarding deadlines and and, and uh, production flows. Uh, and when we got into sensitive areas of the discussion, somebody invariably had to get up and go over to that big door and close that big door to uh, achieve, uh, you know, a level of privacy so that we could maintain a sensitive discussion. And we got so sick of somebody having to get up and walk over there that we took out an afternoon and we went to the hardware store and bought all these supplies and ended up putting a rope with a lurch-like tassel at the end of it that hung right near the couch. That was Flint's idea. And Michael. So Michael and I went to Home Depot. I I remember that. And the rope, the rope went up over a pulley above the uh, ceiling uh, panels and over to another pulley down to the fire uh, magnet that would hold the door open. And in the event of fire, there would be an electronic impulse throughout the building that would then release that magnet so that these, these big doors would naturally swing closed for safety. And, and we... We made it so that it, it would nudge the door away from that magnet when we pulled the tassel as if you were summoning lurch in, in uh, the Adams family. Yeah. So, you know, that's the lengths that we would go to to kind of, uh, you know, cater to our workflow and, and support ourselves and sort of maintain a an island-like community, which was the sound department. Um, within a larger context of a corporate environment.
3: I, I'll just um, give one more, one also, more example. Yeah, one more example. that's a great example of that, which is, you know, we'd be trying to compose in this, you know, office building and, you know, people would come around with clipboards, knock on the door and say, hey, what's going on with this here? You're, you're in the middle of trying to write a melody and now all of a sudden you have to grapple with somebody's scheduling issues. That was kind of getting difficult. And so we would put these signs on the door that said like composing, do not disturb. And guess what? After a day or two, People would just ignore the sign and they'd go and knock on the door anyway. So what we figured out is if you hang the sign with a string so that the sign is suspended in midair in front of your door, people respect it. So that's what we did. Yeah,
2: yeah, that was a detail.
1: Yeah.
2: it was a lot. Of, a lot of it was about making it fun, you know. So, uh, but to, you know, to, to sort of carry that over to. Uh, you know how did that work on return to monkey which we don't have uh, you know we didn't have the uh, the blessing slash curse of being in the same building um, I think a lot of it was that we just had all as soon as we started working together and I'm, I'm talking especially about uh, Ron and Dave and the three of us and um, David Fox and some you know people who that we'd all been uh we'd all worked together 30 years ago and when we started just having these meetings online it was just like that whole vibe just came back and it was and you didn't need to, you didn't need to be in the same building because we'd already done that we didn't need the the tassel and the rope because well now it's the <laughs> now it's the family you have to shoe out sometimes but. <laughs> I don't, not not very often I don't like shooing the family out, but uh it, really that the whole the whole um vibe just came right back it, it was it, the whole the whole atmosphere, and it was almost like except you know if you actually turned on your zoom camera um it was almost like we we were you know that that it was uh, nineteen ninety two not quite. <laughs>
0: Well, guys i mean you have 30 years between you the of experience with with uh with video game composing but a little bit with LucasArts as well so can you give me some maybe some uh some little anecdotes about your work with LucasArts over the years
1: well i can tell you that in that new building there was a large room that was destined to be filled with cubicles and naturally what we did with it was put two hockey nets in there and uh, get a tennis ball and a bunch of hockey sticks and play uh, I'm not sure what the name of the sport would be called because it's a corporate room so it's It's rug hockey I believe it's rug rug hockey that's excellent that's excellent I sustained a particularly humiliating injury from Dan Connors uh, a slap shot from about 30 feet I was down there was, there was a there was a good deal of medical attention, and, and uh, I was surrounded by my co-workers, and other workers walked into the room while these uh, measures were being taken, let's say. Uh, that's, a, that's an anecdote that kind of describes what LucasArts was. It was a family. It was a family, and especially when I first joined it, and Peter and I first joined it and joined Michael in 1991, We would have company meetings. It was about 75 people, and we would all sit on the floor or on the couches or what have you. People would have drinks in their hands or, I mean, you know, Cokes or Pepsis or whatever. And, uh, you know, many people were sitting cross-legged on the floor, Um, a young crowd. I remember being impressed by uh, a fellow named Ron Baldwin, who we called Arby. When I my first day of work, I show up. I don't remember what I was wearing but I probably had a collared shirt tucked in and wondering if I was underdressed. And here he comes in with bare feet, cut-off blue jeans and a tie-dye t-shirt. And I just said to myself, "Wow, this is cuz I'm from the East Coast. I'm all three of us are from the East Coast and you know, really the aesthetic, not only that, but Peter and Michael met at Harvard University. I mean, we we came from a background of uh, more of a European or British sense of you know decorum with regarding dress code and everything else, and it was very new and fresh for me, and I I really loved it and and still do, and so I I would just say that that you know a, a, an overall anecdote of LucasArts would be the amazing uh, level of flexibility on everybody's parts, the the tolerance for people's differences, just as a uh, but last example uh, it, it is in my score for Outlaws, uh, the, the large timpani, uh, I guess the singular would be tympanum, uh, would not fit through the studio door. So we were unable to get the all three or five timpani into the, st- the recording room and therefore had to make the call to have the uh, the timpani outside the recording room with the door wide open in what was a seating area of our sound department that was uh, irreconcilably open to the rest of the company floor there was no door to from from that space out into the the general floor of the company so for like 3 days the entire company had to hear boom, 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 <laughs> and nobody once. Com- and not only did nobody complain, but I think everybody thought it was cool. And not only that, well, yeah. it, real quick, uh, just another yeah. quick anecdote. Pete, hold your thought. When we recorded Ben Spike with that uh, chopper with the straight pipes. It started raining, and he was unable to drive it back to San Francisco. So we said, look, let's just keep it here at the company. We rolled it into the main lobby of the company. It was a weekend day. And when everyone came in on Monday morning, here was this big fat hog parked in the lobby of the company, dripping oil on the floor. Oh, boy. And, and everybody was like, oh, and we didn't make the mistake of wheeling it into the lobby on Sunday and firing it up so that the many people we work many people work weekends at lucas arts it was just a very passionate uh and and deadline driven um you know lifestyle uh and i thought that the the glass doors were going to blow out when he fired this bike up in the lobby um this just gives you an idea of the culture and the looseness and uh you know you can imagine how um, not only we we feel nostalgic looking back on those days, but then to have the opportunity to join Ron Gilbert and Dave Grossman again on another Monkey Island just now feels like a full circle. Uh, but Pete, you had a thought.
2: Well, I was just saying in general, I, I think that uh, that uh, the sound department was or the music department, as it was sometimes kind of called, um, was uh, we were sort of we were a little bit the odd person out in the company but then lucas starts as a whole was a little bit the odd ones out in the in the lucas uh empire we were like they make you know we we, there were three divisions there was ilm there was lucasfilm and then there was us lucasfilm games and what do those guys do and you know we and there'd be big company meetings and there was one that we all went to at, at at uh at uh, Skywalker ranch where everybody in Lucas arts or Luke's film games at the time wore a fez, a little fez with a little gold guy on it. I guess it'd be Lucas arts because there's a little gold guy. And so a red fez, imagine this, you know, really nice auditorium and all these people in it and, uh, about a third of the auditorium or a quarter of the auditorium is people wearing red fezes, <laughs> and George Lucas comes out to talk to us all right. And so it was, it was definitely a, a, uh, you know, there was a little bit of an underground or counterculture aspect to being in LucasArts at all for us sound guys. I think there was, there was sort of a, even a counterculture within that, because we were sort of our own little world in some ways. Um, uh, as, as uh, exemplified by the door with the tassel, <laughs> and the and the uh, and the uh, you know field hockey or rug hockey game and so on, um, you know it was it was definitely a it, it, it was a lively time to be working a lively environment to work in. Right.
3: I'll add one little it, bit. It, it, um, so, so let me just add one little bit, uh, which is because uh, you mentioned George Lucas, the the, the fact that this whole. Uh, you know, Empire was, was owned by George Lucas, who is fundamentally a creative individual. Um, although, I, you know, apparently he's a great businessman too, but, but as, as a creative force in the world, that, that sort of um, ethic kind of uh, pervaded the entire endeavor. Um, you know, everybody in the company, even people who were doing non creative work, felt it. Uh, And, you know, once in a while, he'd come down and talk to us in in a smaller group. And and there was one thing he said once that has always stuck with me. Um, And, in fact, I was thinking of that just recently working on Return to Monkey Island because of the circumstances were quite challenging on Return to Monkey Island at at various times in the production cycle. And um, one thing he said, he 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 was describing some of the travails he had had to go through while making Star Wars. And he said... Uh, in summary, you know, the question isn't what kind of movie can you make? The question is, what kind of movie can you make under the circumstances? And and that always stuck with me because it, it really is true. When you're doing creative work, there's always a context. And sometimes the context is difficult. And, you know, when the creative output comes out on the other end... Um, you know, nobody's going to know what the, what the context was and the challenges you had to overcome. So you just have to get the stuff done and get it out. And that was an ethic that I think we all have carried.
2: I remember that meeting very well because he, he described, because the company was going through a bit of a tough time, and he described um, what he did to make Star Wars. And the first thing that he did, I thought this was so interesting for a creative person, What he said, the first thing he did was, was to look up the gross on every single sci-fi movie ever made. (laughs) And that gave him, he said, well, okay, 2001, that grossed 20 million. So now I know what I, I'm going to be optimistic. And now I know what I have to work with. He didn't just go out and and do sort of a pie in the sky. I'm going to make this thing. It's going to be called Star Wars. It's going to be Fantastic. No, I'm going to look at all the other things that have been done before that are vaguely like it and see what kind of resources I have to work with. And that's how he determined his budget. I thought that was really fascinating.
1: And he, he he imparted to us at that meeting as well what he called the 55% rule, which which was incredibly inspiring, I think, to all of us. And it was a kick in the pants because we were, as a company, we were trying to finesse all these games and, and there were two things about that. One, finessing games and going over schedule and going over budget accomplished one, uh, a very high quality product. And I think that's why LucasArts you know, uh, has a reputation and um, for creating games that are truly loved out there uh, and, and looked back at with fondness. The second thing it had the effect of doing is attacking the bottom line for the company and diminishing profits. And so he came to us and gave us a pep talk, and he talked about what he called the 55% rule. And what this was was, listen, you've got a vision. You've got a vision for accomplishing something. It could be a scene. It could be a line of dialogue. It could be the whole, the whole project. It could be any, anything. You've got a vision. As it occurs to you in your mind, it's 100%. And then you, it goes through all the rigors of production, writing, acting, uh, cinematography, uh, you know, uh, all, the, all the aspects of production and post-production. And when it comes out the other end, it's not 100%. It can't be. It can't be. It's, it's gone through all these real-world sort of relegations and attempts to realize that vision faithfully, but it can't be perfect. So he said, look, if you can hit 55% of that original vision the audience will get it they will get what you're going for and of course i don't think it's a coincidence that 55 is just over half right it's just over half where maybe half would be it could teeter either way but 55% is a is a win in terms of tipping the audience's perception of what you were going for uh, to be to be in line with what you were going for. So that was a, a way, a very diplomatic way of him to kind of light a fire under us and say, you guys got to kind of stick to your schedules more and stick to your budgets more and get things out. And to this day, I think all of us are wise to uh, to remember that 55% rule because we don't have unlimited time and we don't have unlimited budget. So it's it just, there's a, those are some some anecdotes Robert is that that kind of further paint a picture of what it was like
0: well guys I really appreciate this this has been a a, a great pleasure well thank you so much
1: thank yeah, thank, thank you. you thank you Robert yeah appreciate those words appreciate that
0: and yeah I'd like to thank uh Clint Bajakian Peter McConnell and Michael Land they are the, the They were great to talk to for the the length of time. And I'm glad I was able to play the entire interview. This just, it's just great. Anyway, so welcome back to visions and sound As this week. We are celebrating the 30th anniversary of Indiana Jones and the fate of Atlantis. Well, without further ado, here is a little bit of the music from Indiana Jones and the fate of Atlantis.
4: Thank you.
0: Well, that's all for me this week. Uh, Thanks for hanging in, those that did. Now, as we continue into 2022, I hope as you're getting on with your day that you're ever not feeling right, just there are people out there who care about you and are willing to chat. If not family, then some professional who can help. As Rocky said, nobody hits harder than life. I know from personal experience how hard it is for me to sit behind this mic week after week when I feel like no one's listening. I would never have made it this far without the support of a team of people behind me. If you or someone you know is in crisis and needs help, resources are available. And please call 911 for immediate uh, help. The Canadian Association for Suicide Prevention, Depression Hurts, Kids Help phone at 1-800-668-6868. 1-844-HERE24-7 and HERE247.ca all offer ways of getting help if you or someone you know may be suffering from mental health issues. Well, join me next week. As we continue into August with the celebration of the music of Vangelis. I'll end off this week's show with some more music from Indiana Jones and the Fate of Atlantis. (sighs) This music comes from, well, this music still comes from the uh, album of uh, music from Indiana Jones and the Fate of Atlantis. So I'll be back next week with more Visions in Sound.
4: Thank you.